The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Gloria Felt, is an empowering speaker and activist, respected for her life's work supporting the rights of women in choosing their own reproductive destiny, talking to the involvement of planned parenthood and its profound effect on women and families across the country in their daily lives, a passion for life, and self-belief becomes evident in charting her life and career. My guest today, Gloria Feld, is well known and respected as an activist, practical visionary and voice for women seeking guidance on reproductive choices and well-being. As former national president of Planned Parenthood, she has devoted a lifetime to developing hope and security for women in seeking security towards balanced decisions on reproductive issues. Through speaking and writing the voice of women and indeed entire families has assured better education and more informed decision-making in many areas of daily life. Mark Salo, former CEO of Planned Parenthood of San Diego and Riverside counties, recently celebrated her relentless optimism tempered with originality, her willingness to nurture innovative thinking, to advance a bold and audacious vision, a leader, a fighter, an advocate. Gloria Felt, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, thank you. Gloria, I'd like to um, start this program by going back to your childhood, if I may, and and talking about uh, that family life and traditions that you you grew up with in that town in Texas. Yes, well, I often say, I often ask people if they have seen the movie The Last Picture Show, because if, if you have, you have seen, in effect, a documentary of my life. I grew up in small towns in Texas. I was born in a small town called Temple in central Texas and and uh, grew up in a, in a very close-knit, somewhat extended family. And um, I, you know, this was in the 1940s. My, uh, my, it was not exactly a time of raging feminism, but I will say that my father used to tell me that I could do anything my little heart desired. My pretty little head desired. I said that incorrectly. He said you could do anything your pretty little head desires. There's a little bit of a mixed message, but it really stuck. At the same time, I saw that my mother uh, seemed to be very passive. That and, and, and I think that her role modeling affected me in my childhood more than the message I got from my father. So those two things were battling inside of me. We then moved to a very small town in West Texas called Stamford, home of the world's largest amateur rodeo and in the middle of, of uh, red dirt, dry land, cotton farming area. And that's where I went to high school. That's where I met my high school sweetheart. Um, and, and, um, and, and that's where I uh, then got married and started up my family and uh, moved yet further west Texas to Odessa, Texas and George Bush country. So that's the quick and dirty overview of my early life. What was the world then uh, compared to the world that we have now? I mean, I, clearly that you were in a small community and things were very different. 
But uh, I travel across the country uh, often and I see how, uh, you know, the middle of, of this country has been affected so much in, in recent years, especially with the, the economic situation. But back then, how do you see the, the, the values? I mean, how do you see the, the values and, and the way that people grew up different to what we see today? Well, in many respects, life was simpler then, but as I often have observed as I've traveled around the world and seen different cultured cultures, for the most part, the only thing that really changes about human life is the technology. And the basics are, are still the same, but, but what was very different in the 1940s and 50s in rural Texas um, from what I think we see, it, particularly in the urban areas of the United States and in, in urban areas around the world now, is people's notions about the role of women in it. The, as I was growing up, the culture at large essentially said to me, you have one future. You know, there were no real aspirations for a career, uh, for higher education, unless it was, as they used to say, to go get your MRS. And so, I, I, although I had, I was a smart kid, I was a very smart kid, but what I did was I hid my intelligence under a bushel basket because goodness knows a girl didn't want to be smarter than the boys in those days. And, uh, and and I, I really, really just wanted to be what I thought was normal, which was to get married, have babies, live behind a picket fence, um, cook, clean, do housework. And, and that was what I really thought I wanted. And that was what I really learned from the, the culture at large, not so much from my family. Was it back then that you obviously took notes more from your mother than your father, but was it more of a submissive society for women? Yes, and the the gender roles were very, very explicitly drawn. It, you know, it, it, during the Second World War, Rosie the Riveter was 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 told to go to work. So many women had been employed during the early 1940s when their work was needed to to produce goods and 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 products for the the war effort. But what happened when Johnny came marching home from the Second World War is that women were essentially sent back to the kitchen and and the children. What I don't understand is why women went so willingly. And that's one of the things I am looking into right now in, in the research I'm doing that on, on women's relationship with power, because I have seen this repeated pattern of women making giant steps forward and then stepping back on our own. So there's not an easy answer necessarily to your question. Well, but, uh, does, does that, sorry to interrupt, Gloria, no, go ahead. does that suggest... Uh, a, a fear by women, an insecurity by women, th that although th they w they wish to have that independence, they fall back on to uh, the need to be supported by men? I, I think that there's a, a complicated answer to that question. Uh, partly it is that uh, that women today grow up in the context of having been told they can do anything and Sometimes they interpret that as being, we must do everything. Um, when I was a girl, I was essentially brought up in the context of, you can only do certain things. And, and you, in, you, in, you integrate that into your personality. And so it's, uh, there, there's, uh, it, it's hard, as they say, to, uh, I believe Sally Kempton is the person who first said this, it's hard to fight an enemy who has outposts in your head. 
And when you have been told that you are to be a certain way, it is very difficult to break out of that pattern until you get really ticked off at something. And, and, and then what began to happen, I think, to women and certainly to me as we went through the 1960s and 70s was that we began to get very ticked off, very angry about certain injustices that we were beginning to see affected us personally. What, what were those injustices? Are you referring to uh, the, 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 the marches uh, due to the Vietnam crisis or, 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 or other um, social obstacles in, in society? Well, it was an interesting time of a great deal of social ferment with many of those issues all coming to fore at the same time. And the pattern seemed to be that women would get involved in in looking or fighting for social justice for someone else, and in the process of doing that, realize that they had that they should have certain rights and opportunities themselves. That is certainly the pattern that I fell into. I became involved in the civil rights movement in the early 1960s. I was by that time living in Odessa. I was married. I had three children. In fact, I had my third child just after I was 20 years old. And um, and at that point, uh, if you can remember what I said about the technology changing, a miraculous new technology had come into the scene, the birth control pill. The birth control pill for the first time enabled women to really have a life, to think, begin to think about their own lives and to think about themselves separate and apart from their traditional roles as, as mothers. And that's not to say that, that I wouldn't have become a mother otherwise. I would have, indeed. I love my children. They've been the center of my life. And, I, and most women want to have children at some point in their lives. But once you can control your own fertility, then you can begin to think about what you want to do with the rest of your life. So there was a confluence of the birth control pill enabling women to get involved in the community and in social movements. And then there was the learning that we had from being involved in these social movements, whether it was the Vietnam War or, in my case, the Civil Rights Movement. And in doing that, at some point along the line, it was as though I had an epiphany that, wait a minute, women should have civil rights too. I can't tell you exactly when it happened, but but it, it, it was there. And, and it was at that point that I began to realize that for a woman to be able to, to be able to choose anything else about her life, she had to, first of all, be able to make her own choices about whether and when to have children. We, if we look back at history, though, that wasn't really the beginning of this independent uh, um, role of women because if you look back at the late 1800s, early 1900s, of course, you see the birth of the suffragettes. But why, yes. why, why, why did it become so pivotal in the 60s? Uh, in the 60s, well, let me first, actually, it's really great that you bring up the, the earlier parts of the women's movement. And you, you could say that the women's movement, as we know it today, actually started at a, an abolitionist convention in London in the 1820s or 30s. I can't remember exactly the date. And that, that, that culminated, uh, it, and again, it was a situation where women who went realized, wait a minute. I'm fighting for somebody else's rights. Why don't I fight for my own rights, too? 
And so the first women's conference, the first big uh, women's rights conference in the United States occurred in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York. That was a moment where women were stepping forward, and then women stepped back. And for the most part, women said, okay, we're going to fight for abolition first for African Americans, and then after we've done that, we'll come back and we'll worry about ourselves. And that's the pattern that got established. With the suffrage movement, uh, with the suffrage movement that finally culminated in women getting the right to vote in the U.S. in 1920, um, just the fact that you used the term suffragette gives you a clue as to what was going on. Yes. In truth, they were suffragists, and the term suffragette was a way of minimizing them of making them less important than they were. And by the time they had secured the vote, the suffrage movement had dissipated into uh, a very benign sort of, well, we don't really care how women vote just so they get to vote. And the entire progressive agenda that women had in the early part of the 20th century that included many of the things we talk about today, health care, child care, economic uh, parity, all of those issues were being talked about in, in, before women got suffrage. But by the time that, that final vote was taken, it had pretty well dissipated, and, 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 and there just wasn't much forward motion. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it could have been in that, that, that in that period you, you have the Great War, and then, of course, you, you have the lead-up to the Second World War, and it could well have been that the cohesion required by society in whole to, to overcome, overcome those great conflicts diluted their... Uh, their objectives, I suppose. Very good point. And, of course, there was the, Dep- the Great Depression also. So many, many things going on at the same time. But my point is just that women have had a pattern of making steps forward and then taking steps back on their own. Is, is that, before we move forward, and just to, to take up on that, uh, and, and going back to a previous uh, comment that you made, um, women are essentially nurturers when they have children and they have a family. Their, their prime role is to nurture the children more than the father, um, I guess. Um, what is it, that transition that they go through uh, from becoming nurturers to becoming uh, assertive about having more independence and having um, or, or being given the the choices through modern contraception, or or, or these these uh, these options to do something else with their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure that we really know how much of the the nurturance that women seem to come by is really from nature, and how much of it is, in fact, from the roles that they have been assigned by society. It's really hard to, you know, it's really hard to, to, to know that, and, and I don't think we can ever pick that apart. Frankly, I would say that the real, um, the real point of change for women tends to come about much earlier in life than when they become mothers, and, and here's what I mean by that. If you have had the experience of being around girls in their, say, elementary school age, they tend to be strong. They seem to, they have a lot of pep and will, and, and they are likely to be very physically active. They are assertive. They, you know, they can, they can often run circles around the boys in, in many different ways. And then puberty hits. 
then puberty hits. And between the combination of the hormonal changes that are happening, um, which do affect, uh, according to some theorists, do, do affect literally the, the, the brain, uh, how the brain deals with things, the combination of that and, again, the messages that girls get from the culture that they must be attractive to boys, they, they just change from this strong girl to what I call the jelly, the jelly woman, uh, the, the adolescent who molds her body and molds her personality to fit what she thinks society and particularly the teenage boy wants from her. You, you are absolutely describing my uh, 11-year-old daughter at this oh. stage. <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing that uh, very clearly. Um, but uh, and one more one more point before we move on here. Uh, when women have children, um, we see a lot of problems in marriages because the focus is taken away from the husband and placed upon the children. Uh, is, is that part of uh, a, a sequence that then leads women to seek independence rather than return to that that true relationship with the husband? Oh, I don't really think so. I I think that that may have been a a dynamic that was going on uh, at at some times when women were really in very rigid gender roles within the home. But my observation of women and men today is that men have been changed as much by the women's movement now as women have. And men are much more likely to also want to be involved in raising their children. They're much more involved from the moment of of conception. They're much more interested in what's going on during the pregnancy. They're much more likely to be there in the delivery room uh, these days and to be starting to bond with their infants from from the moment of birth. Uh, I know, uh, I, I think one of the real problems for men today is that while we have now succeeded in getting paternity leave opportunities as well as maternity leave opportunities in the workplace, that many of the men are are, are really afraid to take that paternity leave. There's still a stigma <laughs> attached to it. Yeah. Um, but I really think that men these days are, are I, I like them better, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I, I think they're much more nurturing themselves. I, I have to say that in my case with my daughter, Chloe, I was uh, definitely with my wife all the way through the whole process and beyond. And and I suppose that I would um, uh, be in that category. But it, it's funny to me that I have friends who who feel that they are forced into that role by their wives um, uh, to, to uh, you know, join them all the way through the pregnancy and after the pregnancy, and it's almost forced upon them to, to take up that role, even though they may not want to be involved. Well, I guess what I would say to that is uh, get over it. <laughs> <laughs> because it's very important for the children also to have that engagement, I think, of both parents. It, it, well, clearly it's very important, especially if it's a girl, to have that father figure in their lives. Right. Can I move on to a very interesting point, uh, the confluence uh, of, of the personal and political understanding of American culture, um, that whole realization, um, you know, that, that vital balance and relationship between the, the two areas in life. Could you speak to that? Yes, uh, certainly. That's... Uh it's one of the basic principles of of social change, I think, and and it is that what happens to us as individuals is 
partly always the result of bigger political policies and movements. And conversely, each action that we take as an individual has an, has an impact on the larger culture and society. I, I, an example that I would give you is in the, the cumulative choices that we as individuals make today, say, for example, with regard to environmental issues. If, if each of us as individuals does the recycling according to uh, what the best practices would be, what an amazing difference that would make in the cleanliness and the environmental integrity of our earth. Um, at the same time, if we don't have, at the same time, we are responding to the policies that guide us to do that. Could, could, could not the opposing argument be to that, that we are shaped in a cultural sense and, and in our everyday actions by products that are created, that are, that are almost brainwashing us from, from... We are absolutely shaped by the products out there. And this is where I think women today also have an enormous power that we are not using. The, the, and this is another great example of how the personal and the political come together. The people who make the products and try to sell products to us understand that women control approximately 80% to 85% of the decision-making about what products and services are purchased. Now, now, that's huge. Women do not yet, I think, realize the power that we could have if we were to join together and say, you know, I'm sorry, we don't want, you know, what we don't want is to have our 12-year-old daughters being sold all of these cosmetics. We don't really want that. The answer is no, we won't buy it. Then, then what is, uh, let me put this to you, um, what is the mechanism? It, it seems to me at the moment that we have the, the major corporations in this world who are uh, probably stronger than governments at this stage, who are providing these products uh, and guiding and shaping our lives. And if that's the case where women have such a large influence upon the delivery of those products, how is it that we can create a better accountability or transparency with those uh, heads or leaders of these corporations to to uh, to understand by gaining the feedback of of women and men and everybody in in mm. in in changing those products and in revising them in into uh, providing a better quality product mm -hmm. well because things don't just happen people have to make them happen in an organized way an example that i recently saw is uh, i i recently spoke at a conference called C Jane Do in in California and and I was absolutely blown away by the examples that the, that these women had of of uh, of times when e sometimes even one person decided she was going to take on some um, some need that she saw in the community or in the larger world. So the example I wanted to give you is there was one woman in in San Francisco who noticed that the uh, Brita filters, the water purification filters, were not biodegradable. 
and she did some research, and she found that they were literally gunking up the, the ocean uh, around where, where they were getting dumped and killing the ocean life and, and, and just all kinds of horrible environmental things. This one woman started a campaign to get the Brita company to revise their, their water filters to make them biodegradable. Now, that's one thing one person could do, but she organized to get it done. She put up a blog. She put up a website. She began to inform people in her circle, and they all helped her inform more people in their circles. There, there were more and more people who expressed their concern about this product to the company, and eventually the company had to find a way to make a change. So it's, it's baby steps, in other words. It's baby steps that amount to great big giant steps and for uh, humankind. And given the urgency of our climate changes, um, and I have my own opinions on this, but more an urgency about human beings right now um, in, in this world of flux, um, doesn't that necessitate that we that we do this in a more impactful way and in, in, in more of a sense of urgency? Well, I always think there's a sense of urgency, but then I'm you know I'm a great believer in the power of of social movements to actually make things happen and to change the world. Otherwise, how could I have how could I have lived the life I lived? Uh, I, I have seen so much progress in my own lifetime for women. And I know that that progress has occurred because despite the fact that sometimes we step backward, the long trajectory is toward things getting better. And, but, but, but those things don't just happen. They have to happen as a result of individual people putting it together, organizing with other people, and then making it happen on a political level. Uh, so can we move um, to uh, your life dedicated to social justice? Sure. Um, uh, and most importantly, I think for me, is, is how can we arm young people, um, especially women, uh, to, to better understand the, this radically changing world that we're in today? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how will women uh, adapt? How are we all going to adapt now in, in this world that is clearly uh, heading towards a a rebirth, as it were. Mm-hmm. How do you foresee that? Well, I like to say that in chaos is opportunity. When there's rapid change, as we're certainly experiencing today, what, th- what that means is that the that boundaries become more fluid and people are more open to trying out new ideas. I think we're definitely seeing that today in in the wake of the recession and in the wake of the crumbling of some of the financial institutions that we used to think were there forever. And all of a sudden, people are saying, well, what if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters? Would it have been different? Would, 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 would the decisions that were made have been better decisions? And you know, the research is finding that, in fact, when you have diversity at the decision-making table, in fact, decisions are better. Um, you get a variety of perspectives. And I think that young people today, both male and female, are, are pretty extraordinary in many respects. 
and um, I, and I maybe it's because I just taught a course uh, at Arizona State University for the past five weeks in women power and leadership, and I had ten of the most incredible young women I have ever seen in my life, and I just feel like the world is going to be in better hands with them. Uh, that I'm feeling particularly optimistic right now, but I think that that young people today, you know, they have a few problems for sure. They are facing a world where they're not going to be able to have as easy a time getting a job, say, for example, as, as, as some of us were when we started out in life. They're probably going to have a harder time and be older by the time they can actually afford to buy a home. Their, their life is complicated by, um, by the multiplicity of media. I mean, they have so many things they have to pay attention to. But the flip side of that is that in a time of great turmoil and chaos, their creativity, and young people have a lot of creativity, their creativity is going to be very much valued. So who's going to be the next Bill Gates? I hope that that woman is out there um, getting herself ready. Um, and, And I think that we have to give them a lot of encouragement to do that. Moving on to uh, the establishment and your involvement in Planned Parenthood, Uh, and just as a preface to that, um, your own own work uh, prior to that in civil rights and interfaith activities was followed by um, a lot of study and, and involvement in the reproductive destiny of women. Um, and, and, of course, you got involved in civil rights and equality and social justice. Um, an interesting question I'd like to pose to you, was that period defined uh, by the Roe versus Wade and the aftermath of that? Did that come into consideration when you were seeking answers on these issues? No, I was seeking answers on those issues before that time. So now I'm going to take us back to the 1960s. We've been going back and forth a little bit in in, in our time frame here. So uh, just to be clear, uh, I'm going to take us back to the 1960s. So the civil rights movement is is really at its at its peak at that time, and there are many changes that are going on. I began to be involved in some of the great society programs of. Um, President Lyndon Johnson, and one of those was a an educational program for children in low income families called Head Start. I began to teach school there, and um, and that was where I began to find out about the organization called Planned Parenthood because one of my teaching colleagues was on the board, and I, I was in West Texas and in Odessa, Texas at that time, and it was a brand new little organization. Now we're in the late. 60s, I guess, and early, like about 1969, 1970. And she was quite convinced that the way to help the families in her class out of poverty was to make sure that they could have the number of children they could afford and no more. And so she took the moms in her class to Planned Parenthood every month to get their birth control pills. What I didn't know at that time was that the United States Supreme Court had legalized birth control in 1965 in the case of Griswold versus Connecticut, which is what first established a right to marital privacy. And, um, and, and so that was, a, that was a watershed case, and, and the fact that Griswold versus Connecticut will be, will be uh, uh, having a, a major anniversary here soon is, 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 is worth thinking about the importance of that case, because not too many people know about it. 
that is how I came to know about the organization Planned Parenthood. But I had already come to understand in my own life from having been a teen mom, from having understood how difficult it is when you're when you when you have little money and many children, uh, from so that was the personal to me, and then there was the political uh, of having begun to connect that with the whole issue of justice for women and equality for women in general, and and the understanding that if a woman was going to be able to determine her life in any respect, she had to first be able to determine her own reproductive destiny. And 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 the those things came together for me as as my friend and teaching colleague asked me to do some volunteer work for Planned Parenthood during those years. I did that, and then I sort of moved on. I left my job at Head Start when the University of Texas opened a branch in Odessa, and that gave me the opportunity to complete my bachelor's degree. So I went back to school to get my bachelor's degree. I was intending to get my teaching certificate to teach school for the rest of my life, right? Traditional woman's job, right? Instead, what happened was, as I was taking the very last course to get my degree, I was required, it was an ecology course, and I was required to do a paper of some sort, and I decided to do a paper on voluntary family planning and the impact of population on, on, the, on uh, the ecology. In the course of writing that paper, I called up uh, some folks at Planned Parenthood and asked if I could come and interview them. I had never met the executive director of the West Texas affiliate. I interviewed her. I interviewed some board members. I interviewed some nurse practitioners. I wrote my paper, and I thought that was the end of that. Within a few weeks, just as I was completing this last course that I needed to take for my degree, the executive director called me up and said, I'm leaving. I think you should submit a resume and apply for this job. I thought to myself, well... I'm in no danger of being hired, but it would be great experience for me to put together a resume and go through the interview process. Well, um, much to my surprise, I was offered the position of executive director of this small affiliate in West Texas. And that then was 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade. I had hardly been cognizant of the Roe v. Wade decision, honestly. Um, I really didn't know that much about the movement to get reproductive rights. I just understood it from a personal standpoint. And, and, and it was only after I actually started working for Planned Parenthood and began to study the history that I began to understand the political movement that had resulted in Griswold versus Connecticut that legalized birth control and then Roe versus Wade that legalized abortion, also ba- based on a right to privacy. And and what was the catalyst uh, with your work on the Freedom of Choice Act? Well, the Freedom of Choice Act didn't come around until many years later, and and it's that's uh, but but the segue from those early days in Planned Parenthood to the Freedom of Choice Act is a good one. As I mentioned, those two watershed cases were based on a right to privacy. The reason they were based on a right to privacy, um, which I learned from reading Jeffrey Tubin's wonderful book, The Nine, about the United States Supreme Court, is that in those years, 
the Supreme Court had not yet taken up gender equality cases. And so they didn't have a precedent to decide the issues of birth control and abortion based on gender equality. So they based them on a right to privacy, a right, particularly a right to marital privacy. The problem with that is that Roe v. Wade has always been, been a rather weak legal basis for protecting reproductive rights. And because it's been a weak basis, we have had a continuous chipping away at the right to reproductive self-determination ever since Roe v. Wade was decided. And, uh, and so it's, it, it just, it's just not a strong enough legal or moral position to say the right to privacy is what guarantees reproductive uh, determina- self-determination. And so at, I think we're at the point in our history now where that is very evident. Most of the steps since Roe v. Wade was decided in 1974 have been steps backward, although not all of them by a long shot. And I could talk about some of the other advances that was made. But the... Um, so I believe there is now a need to create an entirely new legal basis for reproductive rights. And the Freedom of Choice Act, is, as it is currently written, is a civil rights act. It, is, it says you can't, the government could not discriminate against a woman for choosing to have a child or choosing not to have a child. And the outcome of that in, in your mind? The outcome of that would be to give legislative protection that would be national in scope to a woman's ability to plan and space her own childbearing. It would, and, and it would, it would, um, it would, it is a different basis than saying there's there's just a right to privacy that the government just shouldn't be telling you what to do. Um, this is this goes a little deeper, and it I. For me, it gives more legitimacy to a woman and a woman's right to her own life. As you continue these efforts, um, you you get to the 2004 March to Washington, and and clearly now you are uh, very established um, in your work and well recognized. Um, what was it about that march that that was so successful? And and I, I believe it was the the, the largest march uh, in in U.S. history. How did that change things at that stage? Well, it, it was it was a great day. It was a great outpouring of of public support for the notion that that women should be able to make their own childbearing decisions. And um, there's. Um, there is a, I believe there is a time to march. It's not easy to pull together a big, a big uh, grassroots uh, event like that. Believe me, it's it's just uh, a huge amount of effort. But but there are times when it's time to do that. And the reason it was time to do that in 2004 was that um, that 2004 was uh, the end of George W. Bush's first term. It was clear that the, the pressures to roll back reproductive rights were becoming 
bigger and stronger all the time, and that those of us who believed in a woman's right to make her own childbearing decisions had to speak up, had to show our strength, had to show our willingness to come out to to stand up for what we believed. And um, that was the that was a very good thing. And 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 I, I have to say that now, what is it? Six years later, I. Still meet so many young people who say, you know, that march changed my life. My mother took me to it, or I went because I was in college and my, you know, my uh, group of students in college organized a bus and we all went and we thought it was just going to be fun. But boy, it really radicalized me. It made me decide that I would get involved in, in this movement. So that, all of that has been very, very positive. Um, but, you know, there were some things we had no control over. We had no control over the fact that, in, in my opinion, um, John Kerry was not the strongest of candidates that the Democratic Party might have put forward. And, uh, and so he lost the election in, in, in 2004, and George W. Bush won a second term. And uh, so that, that meant that there were then another four years of continued assault on reproductive freedoms, and um, uh, the march, the march on Washington clearly energized the pro-choice base, and I think gave them a little second wind to fight the battles during the second Bush term. But um, it, things might have been a whole lot better if he hadn't had a second term. If I may just be bluntly political here. Let me ask you the fight forward strategy. How did that come about then? What, what was your main? Uh, objective with that? Oh, well, it's because I feel like one of the main things that I did when I was president of, national president of Planned Parenthood was to turn the, the, the general strategy of the organization around from being reactive to being proactive. Um, what happens, I think, when you have some victories is that you get a little um, you kind of uh, you lose a little steam, and what happened after the pro-choice movement won Griswold versus Connecticut and Roe versus Wade, and had some other victories as well, federal funding for family planning services for low-income women, for example, and and things like that, um, they stopped advancing proactive legislation and started primarily defending what they had already won. And so where I came into the, to the, to the movement in 1974, even in West Texas, I began to see that. Certainly when I got to Arizona, where I ran the affiliate for 18 years, it, it became very evident to me. And so, um, so while I was in that role, I, I began to, um, to work with the legislature, and we had some legislation that would have provided funding for family planning. Um, we didn't pass it, but, but it, but it, enabled us to begin to mobilize our supporters and to fight on our terms, not the opposition's terms. So similarly, when I became the national president of Planned Parenthood, I decided that the main thing I wanted to do was, as I like to put it, um, make us be thermostats, not thermometers, that we should set the temperature, not wait to see what the weather is and then put on a sweater if we're too cold. And so the idea of fighting forward was to say, you know, even if the political climate is really bad, we're better off putting forward our own legislative agenda and fighting for that, fighting forward, than we are trying to fight against um, whatever attacks other people are trying to impose upon us. So some examples of fighting forward have been um, developing legislation at the federal and state level to make sure that insurance plans cover contraception if they cover other prescription drugs. 
And we were able to get that passed in, oh, while I was national president, I think in about 24, 25 states, and also to um, get Congress to pass legislation that required um, federal employees' insurance plans to cover contraception. And that, it, that in turn, made contraceptive coverage the norm for insurance companies. And so now it's pretty much the norm everywhere, even without federal legislation to that effect. I, I sense uh, thus far, charting this, this, uh, this journey, that in, in some ways you could say that this whole movement goes forward two steps and back one. And, and was it, or, or is it that p- political influences have a big impact on that? You, you mentioned uh, the, the, the second term for uh, George W. Bush. Uh, are you suggesting that in that period that there were a lot of activities or, or, or prior to that a lot of achievements that had been, had been made that, were, that then stumbled in that period? <laughs> oh, that would be an understatement. That would be a very big understatement. I, I wrote a book called The War on Choice during that period. Of, it was published in 2004, and, 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 I, and I, by the time I had finished doing it, I was almost depressed myself. And I'm not easily depressed. I'm a very optimistic person. But when I began to, to catalog and categorize the different kinds of assaults that the right wing was, was making on women's reproductive rights, it, it was pretty astonishing. Um, a lot of people thought they were just attacking the right to abortion, but really they were also attacking the right to get birth control. Um, they were, um, they were, you know, there were, that was the era when there was a big push to change all of the sex education programs into programs that didn't teach straightforward, accurate, and medically accurate information, but rather to say the answer is just say no. Um, there also were, you know, there, there was the, the, the strategy of changing the federal courts. Eight years of a very, very conservative president means that our federal judiciary is now very much tilted toward a, a very conservative point of view and conservative in the sense of of um, being opposed to reproductive rights. Is, is, is this a reflection or, or indicative because of certain policies uh, that health care during this period should not include, include provisions for, for contra- contraception? Yes, that, is, that, that has been a part of it. And, uh, oh, we've fought battles over things like emergency contraception um, with the, with the uh, anti-choice groups trying to define emergency contraception as abortion, whereas from a pharmaceutical perspective, it, it, it is nothing but a birth control pill in a dosage that will, will prevent uh, a fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus. And the medical definition of pregnancy is the implantation of a fertilized egg in the uterus. So, I mean, that may sound like, like splitting infinitives, but it, it really isn't. These are, these are important scientific and medical facts that are getting completely skewed by right-wing ideology. Does, does, that, does this all suggest possibly in think tanks and maybe commentators that socialized medicine would, would be a better way forward in, in covering these issues? Oh, well, I, that's, that's probably a little bit of a, of a leap. I, I think you would probably find that many of us who believe in, in women's access to reproductive health care would say that we, we certainly support the current efforts to get 
um, in uh, health health coverage for all Americans. But I, I guess I think that would be going a little bit too far to say that socialized medicine would be the answer necessarily, because you could have socialized medicine uh, where if you had a, a right wing government that that that, that was still uh, shaping the policy for a say a, a national health care plan, you could still have a health care plan that that did not include reproductive health care. So I don't think I mean I don't think it's so much the the what, what would the term be? I don't think it's so much the political philosophy behind the health care system as it is the the uh, the philosophy that pertains to whether women have a right to make their own reproductive decisions. Yeah, and and to make it clear on my part, I'm not suggesting that socialized medicine is a way forward because actually I don't think it is. But <laughs> moving on from that, um, you you become a, a, a profound writer. You you write uh, many uh, well received books, and I'd like to look at this wonderful bit, uh, book, "Send Yourself Roses: Thoughts on My Life." where you collaborated uh, with Kathleen Turner. Um, how did that come about, and, and, and what was it that uh, gave you so much passion uh, in that relationship? Oh, that was such a fun book to write, and Kathleen is such an incredibly wonderful person, as well as a super fine actor, actress, probably one of the best um, actresses of our time. And uh, she's always been just an amazing character to me. To be honest with you, it was my book agent's idea, <laughs> I wanted to write a completely different book. I, I wanted to tackle America's difficult relationship with sex, which can be the topic of, of another interview another day. Yeah. But, uh, but it was my book agent who said, you know, you, you, should, really write, uh, you should really write Kathleen's biography. And I, I, Kathleen is the, uh, is the chair of the National Planned Parenthood's uh, Celebrity Board of Advocates. And so I knew her and had worked with her in that capacity. I'm very happy to say that in the course of writing this book together, we became more than just allies, became very good friends as well. And my admiration for her only grew. The title of it, Send Yourself Roses, and by the way, the way Kathleen wants us to say it is, Send Yourself Roses, Yes, is that she says she, um, she loves roses, and when she's in a play... The opening night, her dressing room is generally full of roses that people have sent to her. And then after that, nothing. And she said, you know, I like roses, so I don't wait for somebody else to send them to me. I have a standing order with my florist. To get just, I send myself a dozen roses every week, and sometimes I put a nice note in it. And and so the the idea is for a woman to be strong enough to realize that she has the responsibility to to take care of her own needs and 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 not to just rely on other people to to take care of her needs for her. What is the importance of somebody like Kathleen Turner as a role model in society? Well, one of the things that that Kathleen realizes is that when she says something of, with, with her voice, uh, people listen. Yes. And so she takes it very seriously. She calls herself an actor activist. And, um, and she's been involved in public service since she was age 11 and started volunteering at a hospital. So she takes public service very, very seriously. And she chooses the things that she gets involved with because she, she realizes that when someone with a high public profile takes part in, uh, say, a nonprofit organization, they are they are listened to more than the rest of us, and so it's a responsibility. 
she takes the responsibility very seriously. So she, she, she picks things like she's involved with Planned Parenthood, she's involved with People for the American Way, um, she is involved in City Meals on Wheels in New York because she believes in doing something in her local community. And this woman literally delivers meals herself. And, um, and, and she's, she's, she speaks a lot about that and, and just feels that every person has an obligation to be involved in that way in the community. And in the, the final two or three minutes of the program, Gloria, uh, I understand that you are working on a new book, Woman's Relationship with Power. Could you talk to that briefly, but moreover, uh, give me your views on, on the future for women and reproductive rights, and, and moreover, the future uh, for families in this, in this changing world that we're in? Mm-hmm. Well, I am always an optimist. I, I believe that... I believe that while we do have setbacks, and it doesn't mean that things are easy, that human beings are infinitely capable of making life better. And um, uh, so with that in mind, I I started looking at the trajectory of women and how women have advanced, and then I saw how often we have taken ourselves backwards, too, and that's why I wanted to really look into the issue of women's relationship with power. But it's ultimately, uh, what I'm writing about is ultimately about, about hope and, and optimism. Um, because I believe that if we change, number one, if we change the definition of power from the old hierarchical definition where we think of power over, you know, I don't really want power over you. And I don't want you to have power over me. But I want both of us to be able to have the power to accomplish the things in this world to make life better for ourselves as individuals, for our families, and for society. And, I, and I'm wondering what the skeptics would define that power as in, in the case of a woman. Um, could there be negative connotations here? Could there be a paranoia? Um, what specifically is that power and what specifically is that benefit? Well, absolutely. Uh, when you're making the kind of profound social change that comes with bringing gender equality about, and, and it's a big, big change in, in, our, in our human life, uh, people, some people will be afraid and there will be a reaction and there will be a backlash. But, uh, but that doesn't mean we should stop because it's a matter of simple social justice. It's just a matter of simple social justice. I am sure you want your 11-year-old daughter to be able to accomplish whatever she wants to accomplish in this world. And if she wants to become an astronaut or if she wants to become a nurse or, she, you know, whatever she wants to do, I'm sure you want her to, to at least have the opportunity to try. And I think that's all we're talking about. And, 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 and so with, with that as an idea, I, I see a much better, a much better world. I think that social media is a big help. I think that it helps to connect us in a, in a way that we have never been connected before, uh, globally, uh, so that we can understand a bigger variety of people better. And I think that, that, that technology also helps to sort of level the playing field for men and women. We live in a world where it's brains and not brawn that, that, that would be needed for most of the jobs that need to be done. And so that, too, puts women and men on a more equal playing field. And um, there will be bumps in the road. Uh, many women resist the idea of power. But I find that once I talk to them about changing the definition to one that they feel comfortable with, 
to say that um, I want to, I, I am very able to have the power to do things that will make the world better for my own children, then women relax and they can, they feel comfortable to take it on. And then the next step is to have a very specific plan of action and figure out what resources you need to have to put into place to actually make happen whatever you want to have happen. So if I want the Freedom of Choice Act to pass, for example, I have to be involved in grassroots politics from the ground up. I have to want to be able to elect people who will cast their votes in favor of the Freedom of Choice Act. Um, if my issue is the environment, then I need to be willing to step up and be involved in organizations that work on that or to create new ones, such as the the uh, example I gave you of the woman who, who got the Brita company to change their, their filters and make them biodegradable. And very briefly, what is your passion for the future? What, what are your objectives in the, in the near term here, Gloria? Uh, to me, it always comes down to the... the the individual human being. I have grandchildren, and that's enough to give me a lot of passion. I, I want them to. I want them to have a world in which they can flourish, and in which they can be the best that they can be. And um, and and that's that's what gives me that's what gives me the hope. Um, and from my background in the world of. of giving women reproductive health care and options. Uh, honestly, there is still never a day that goes by, even though I'm no longer uh, employed in that field, there is still never a day that goes by that someone doesn't say to me, you saved my life. And I know what they mean. It, it is a life-saving thing to be able to simply have the, 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 the freedom to make one's own decisions about whether and when to have children. And that's, that's it. It's what it does for that individual human being that makes the difference for me. Gloria Felt, it's been a great privilege uh, and uh, a wonderful time shared with you today. I thank you so much for being on the program and certainly look forward to talking to you again on a, another program in the future. David, thank you for having me. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can find information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. We also have a blog that you can leave information on or questions. I'm sure that our guests, when they have a chance, would be very pleased to respond to you. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Music